Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Behind the Image Leadership Podcast. Um, my name is Rick Gutterson. I'm really excited to have you with us today. We have a really special episode today. As many of you know, I'm a, I'm a big superhero fan, and I've loved the superhero movies. I grew up with comic books and, and characters. Um, and, and so today's topic, we're actually going to be talking about the importance of our origin story. And the origin story, for those who love comic books or who are interested in those kinds of things, uh, is just you know, how did this this person become who they are? Uh, and oftentimes we're talking about their, their superhero journey. But but in our case, we're talking about our leadership journey. Uh, you know, and the origin story is really about, you know, something that maybe have happened to us in the past, uh, something we've been through. Often it's a tragedy or a really challenging circumstance that we've had to navigate. Um but, but more importantly than what happened to us, it's, it's about how we responded and, and how we've been shaped or molded by that experience. And as we've grown, as we've healed, and as we've begun to change and transform, who have we become and how can we use what we've been through to serve others and to invest in those that we serve? And I think this principle applies whether you're in the nonprofit sector or if you're uh, in the business sector, because often the reason we chose that field is because of what we've gone through. But the difference, I think, is that sometimes we don't often share that or we don't allow that experience that we've uh, gone through to uh, to shape our career path or shape our leadership. And we, we kind of tuck it behind our back and we, we we've been through it and we kind of put it in the past and we move on. But I think there's a difference between moving on and moving forward. And as you're going to hear with today's guest, I think that as we if, if we incorporate that into our journey and we accept that part of our story, we can be even more impactful as uh, as a leader and as a as a professional. I had the pleasure of interviewing Brennan Wood, who's the executive director of the Dougie Center in Portland, Oregon. And what I love about Brennan is she is the embodiment of this idea of of how important your origin story is. And you're going to hear more about kind of her background and why she got into the grief uh, support field. And, and also how she's used what she's been through to serve others as a leader. And I think it'll speak to the importance of why we as leaders need to incorporate our origin story into our professional life, into our leadership and into our businesses and the impact that we can have as a result of that. So I'm excited for you to hear our conversation today with Brennan Wood. All right. Well, I'm super excited to have Brennan Wood joining us here today. Thank you so much for, for, for taking the time to, to be on this podcast and welcome to Behind the Image. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Oh, it's my my pleasure. I really was happy that you um, wanted to, to, to join us because I, you know, I've, we've met and we've talked a little bit in the past, but we don't know each other super well. And yet we've both had the the pleasure and also the, the challenge of leading grief support organizations. And, um, but I'm also, uh, I love the work that, that you do with the Dougie Center because they're such a powerful resource for not just you locally, but nationally for all the other grief support organizations as well. So just take a time, a little bit of time and, and introduce uh, listeners to the Dougie Center and your role there and uh, some of the things that they'd like to know about uh, Dougie Center. Sure, absolutely. So um, Dougie Center was started in 1982. So it was actually the first bereavement center for grieving kids in the United States, um, probably the world, but but for sure the United States. And uh, the, the Dougie Center was founded by a nurse named Bev Chapel, and she met a little boy named Dougie who was dying of an inoperable brain tumor. And what she learned from Dougie was just remarkable. Dougie wanted to talk about what he was going through. And this was in the late seventies. And, you know, the, the adults around him were really uncomfortable with his questions and his, 
you know, wanting to discuss what was happening to him. And what she really learned from Dougie was that kids help other kids, that they speak the same language. And as she was kind of learning more about end of life issues um, through some work with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which is actually how she met Dougie, uh, she kind of came up with this idea of bringing kids together to talk about what they were experiencing. And the first Dougie Center group was in the family room of her home with four little boys who'd all had a parent die, all had a dad die actually. And their moms came together and the kids came together and it, it was magic. I mean, it was healing and, and, you know, the kids had the opportunity to really share deeply about their experience because they were in the room with other kids who had that same experience and for the first time felt normal. Um, and so the Dougie Center grew from there. And over the last almost 40 years now, it's been, you know, an international leader in the field of childhood bereavement. And uh, we've served over 55,000 kids, teens, young adults and their families. Um, here in Portland, Oregon. And then, uh, of course, there's all these locations across the country and around the world that are doing similar work to the Dougie Center, many, many, many of whom we have trained, uh, which is amazing. What an awesome responsibility and privilege it is to, to, to lead an organization that's leading other leaders across the country to do such important work. Uh, how long have you been the director for the Dougie Center? Yeah, well, I've been on staff for 16, almost 17 years, and have been in the executive director role for um, about five and a half years now, almost six years. And, you know, I came to the Dougie Center, well, you may know this, I think you know this, that I came to the Dougie Center as a kid in 1987 uh, when my mom died. And the Dougie Center changed everything for me. It was the single most impactful thing that helped me after the death of my mom. And I often say that, you know, my life just would not be the same. I, you know, I, it, it literally saved my life as I know it um, by coming to the Dougie Center. And um, I then, after participating in the program for almost two years, I then left and started speaking and, and doing things for the Dougie Center and then took the volunteer training and was a volunteer for three years before leaving Portland for 10 years and then coming back almost 17 years ago. And I came back to work at the Dougie Center. They didn't know it yet, uh, but I started off as the receptionist and program assistant and worked my way through, gosh, seven or eight different titles um, and have been executive director now for five and a half years. That's that's amazing. I think it's so powerful to know that, and I've talked about this on past episodes and with some some other guests that we've interviewed, just the the power of of turning something that's so awful and painful into something that's that gives you this purpose and meaning in life to to not just go through something, but to turn it into something that can help and benefit other people. I mean, you're you're a living example of that. And I I, I think I'm a super I'm a comic book nerd and and so I love to call it our origin story, right? It's our grief story or it's our our story of transformation. But so many superheroes go through these horrible or painful experiences as a kid or as a young adult. And it's that experience that as they heal from it, they grow and become these superheroes. But but likewise, there's so many characters that experience loss or tragedy, and it fuels them to become a supervillain as well. And it's kind of about our choice to what to do with what we've been through. And, and your story is living proof that even as a young person going through something horrible like losing your mom, um, you've been able to transform that experience and, and redeem it into something that can benefit. I mean, we're 
thousands of tens of thousands of people across the country are either directly or indirectly, you know, affected by your leadership and by your story. That's awesome. Thank you for that. It's, it's interesting that yeah, I love your, that analogy. I think it's really cool. And also my brother is in the comic book industry. Um, and so it's, it's great because it's like, you know, I went the grief route. He went the comic book route and both of those work in your. <laughs> right. You know, one of the things I've, I've always wondered, I'm like, you know, I don't even know if the profession I'm in even exists. Like I, I, I do have my background with grief support, my, my master's degrees in social work with nonprofit leadership, social work leadership. But I'm also this like superhero junkie who has comic book figures and stuff all over my office. And I'm like, I'm not sure there's a world that exists that can blend those three passions. But that's why I love behind the image, because that's that's who I am. And I've always been really intentional about trying to bring that into whatever setting. And so even when I was the executive director at the New Hope Center for Grief Support in Michigan, um, I had my figures around my office because it was a conversation starter. And the adults got a chuckle out of it. But you never know when a kid was going to come by and when we could spend time with a child. And so you you had these references that built connection, but also kind of shows your personality. And so I, I I love teaching even adults through those kinds of things as well. Um, but I, but I think I, I'm just, you know, I'm really inspired by what you shared about the, the journey, right? Because not only have you been on a journey in your personal life with, with just grieving, but and healing and discovering who you are, um, but also professionally to, to go back and work at the agency that really made such a difference at your life. And then to be there for 17 different years and, and all the different roles there. I mean, talk about what that's like to start as a, a receptionist and a programming assistant and just be at all the different levels of an organization that um, meant so much to you as a child. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's a, a full circle moment, you know, every day, <laughs> which is great. And, you know, I think that coming back to the Dougie center was so cathartic for me, you know, to come back to this place that I spent so much of my childhood and it was so healing. And, you know, I, I feel like there was some trepidation in coming back because what if it wasn't as healing and hopeful and wonderful as I remembered? And, and, you know, within minutes, I recognized that it is and that kids walking through the doors of the Dougie Center today are getting that same level of support and care and resources uh, that kids who, you know, who came with me and myself got uh, that long ago, 33 years ago now. Um, you know, I think that there's, there is this idea in the world that grief is only one thing, you know, grief is linear and it's only sadness and, you know, that there's just this right way of doing it. And I think that one of the beautiful parts of being a part of the Dougie Center is that you know, you really come to realize that not only is grief natural and normal and healthy, but it's it's varied and complex and that there is this deeper understanding. I'm going to quote my predecessor, Donna Sherman here, but, you know, she really talks at times about the deeper understanding of the beauty and the brevity of life that happens when you've experienced a death far too young. And that can be uh, you know, it's never going to make it okay that my mom died. You know, it's never, I would never talk to the kids in our program and say, you know, someday you're going to look back and find meaning in all of this. You know, I would never, I would never say that that's too prescriptive and, and certainly not everybody's experience, but I certainly think that for a lot, excuse me, for a lot of folks who, who grieve it, it opens up this capacity for deeper, um, life and love and joy and you know you get to experience all of it when you're 
really able to walk into and walk through that grief process. Um, it's, it can be a really, you know, dare I say beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you know, the struggle of like when you're, when you work in the grief world, finding the right words to describe these things can be so hard because you're like, oh, this is such a uh, good story or this and that, but all of these things are fueled by something incredibly tragic or painful. But you're right. I mean, beauty is a, is a great word to describe it because of the transformation that can occur in somebody, right? Like you go through something hard and the expectation should be that you, you know, that your goal is to survive it. But really, the ones who can transcend that experience and and as they heal, they invest their healing into the life of somebody else. I think there's nothing more beautiful than that because it doesn't mean that their pain didn't exist or that their tragedy didn't exist. But it means that they've done something with it, which becomes sacrificial because you and I both know it would be easier emotionally. And I, I lost my mom as a young adult. I, I mean, I was 34. I just got married. My, my wife's mom had just died the same year. And we had only been married about 18 months. And and not too long after that, I, I've shared with people that um, we found out that we were likely not going to be able to have biological children. And and so that was just a really hard season. And so you're, you're going through all these things. But I think it becomes really powerful to know that you can make a difference in the life of somebody else just by using who you are and what you've been through. But I think the the thing I found fascinating about uh, grief support in particular is it would be easy to, once you've gone through this experience and healed from it, to walk away from this world because it is painful and it's messy. And every time you're you think about grief support, it reminds you of the loss you've experienced or the pain you've gone through. But those who choose to come back into this world to serve it's some of the most brave and courageous people I've ever met. And I'm sure you've got countless stories of people because it, it, it costs something of you to come back into it because you're, you're constantly reminded of some of those feelings or I mean, as a speaker, or as a leader, you have to kind of go back into that, that memory or those things to, to remember what it was like, uh, you know, for the person who's just walking the doors for the first time, right? So, so as a leader, I'm sure that you've seen lots of people who have kind of used their origin story to kind of come back and serve. I mean, is there any stories that come to mind of of people you've trained, whether it's staff or volunteers, who who are kind of a good example of that origin story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many. Um, first, I wanted to just share uh, one thing that I heard from a father that I thought was so powerful, and he shared, you know, after his daughter died, he said, "I just don't want anyone." to think that their broken heart isn't, um, you know, can't provide something for someone else, right? That the power of that can provide something for someone else and that that's a powerful story. And I just thought that was so, you know, brave and beautiful for him to share that. Um, so yes, there are so many people that that come back to the Dougie Center, so many of our volunteers, and also a lot of volunteers who have a story and didn't get the support that they needed, right? So they didn't have a place as a child where they could um, you know, get the support that they needed. I, our longest term volunteer, Dean, who was a volunteer in my group. So there are three current volunteers who volunteered in my team group at the Dougie Center 33 years ago which amazing. is just amazing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dean has been at the Dyke Center for, for 34 years now, I think 35 years now, maybe even longer. Um, and, you know, he had his dad die when he was a little boy and he didn't get the support that he needed back at that time. And, um, and, you know, and he sat at, at the Dougie Center with grieving kids of all ages for years and years. Um, another story that comes to mind is 
probably one of my favorites because you know, I was 14 when I first met Donna Sherman, the D Dougie Center's executive director for the previous 25 years before I became executive director. And I was on a stage with her and I was kind of the, the token grieving kid sharing my story. And, and she uh, was teaching people, you know, about grief and loss. And, and we were in this church of, there were probably 200 people, you know, uh, counselors and, and clergy people and, you know, hospital workers and, you know, anyone who wanted to learn about kids and grief. And I remember just looking up at her and saying, oh, I want to do what she does. I want to be her. I want that job. And, and that was kind of my, you know, initial inspiration at 14 years old that I really wanted to be a part of this, this field. And, you know, you kind of come full circle in one of my first speeches as executive director was at our May benefit, our big fundraiser. And I was up on stage and I shared my story and I gave, you know, all of the powerful, the powerful work of the Dougie Center. And I got down off the stage and I sat down and and two kids in our program that two girls in our program that were about probably 12 or 13 at the time came up to me and said, we want your job. <laughs> we want, you know, we want to do what, what you do. Can we meet the founder, Bev Chapel, and can we meet Donna Sherman? And I introduced them to them. And it was just, you know, one of these wonderful full circle moments. A few years later, one of those girls actually spoke at our volunteer event because she's now volunteering. And she said at the end of her, um, at the end of her speech, Brennan, I'm coming for your job. And that's <laughs> amazing. You know, I right. What a cool honor that is to 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 have that. Where just to know, I mean, it's such a similar journey to what you traveled. I, I actually one of the, th the things that came to mind is I think I don't know if it's the first time we met in person, but it was one of the first times we were at the 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 National Alliance for Grieving Children their symposium, and I had uh, recently I had brought on a staff member who had a very similar story to yours in the sense of she was a young girl and um, early elementary school age had lost her father, came through our program the very first year it was open. Um, um, and years later, when she saw that we were hiring to add an administrator to our team, she applied for it. And she said this was her dream job, that she would been wanting to work there since she was in high school. And that ever since what she had been through, uh, she wanted she knew that she wanted to help others. And so she had shared that with me during her interview. And so when I heard your story, um, you were so um, humble and kind enough to, to listen to hers a bit. And I just introduced her to you briefly and and uh, she she learned about yours and she just had a chance to meet you and say hi and say thank you. And you could see the, the inspiration. But I think it's crazy because of the fact that, like you said, no, we would never choose to have these experiences. I mean, if we could go back in time and, and have both of our moms back in, in our lives, we would choose that for sure, you know. But yet we don't have that choice. And so we're dealt this hand that's terrible. And like, what do we do with it? But it does bring some redemption or some healing continually to know that that painful season in our life can be something that inspires somebody else. And so um, I appreciate you not only sharing it with listeners of this podcast, but to know that you are helping teens and kids and adults alike all across the country by sharing a part of who you are, which isn't the easiest thing to share, but to know that you're using it to make a difference is, is uh, inspiring. I'm really grateful that you make such a priority of that. Oh, thank you. It's a privilege. I mean, I, I feel privileged to be able to do it. And what I often will kind of talk about is, you know, two very different things can be true at the same time. And we can hold both those things together in very different you know, juxtaposing beliefs or feelings or ideas can happen at the same time. And, you know, I, I will always 
I will always say that, you know, my mom should not have died. It's not fair that, you know, I would give anything, anything um, to, to have that not have happened uh, and, or to even spend five minutes with her now, you know, but at the same time, I can hold that truth and hold the truth that I'm so grateful for the gifts that I've been given in my life because of my mother's death. And, you know, that definitely softens the edges. I mean, I've said that this job for me has miraculously kind of magically traveled back in time and softened the edges. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's a lot that can do that. You know, that's pretty powerful. And that's, that's what I really am trying to capture in this behind the image podcast, because translating the, the conversation that you and I are having about grief support. We've both worked in the field. And so we're comfortable with these really hard or painful conversations that the average person doesn't typically have. Right. But yet one of the things I learned, and even through working with the National Alliance for Grieving Children, when you're working with executive directors all across the country, you know, for every um, positive that we've had, in, whether it's on a, a programming level, an organization level, a team level, there's also these struggles or these challenges that we have behind the scenes. And, and as directors, I mean, we carry this, this shouldering burden that we have, this responsibility, this, this passion we have for serving others. Um, and yet behind the scenes, if we were to really be open and honest, so many of us are also struggling with either personal lives or struggling with the responsibilities or struggling to keep up or not sure what to do. And, and, it's, and it's devastating, right? And so that's one of the thoughts and the, the motivations behind having these kinds of conversations, because there's leaders out there and maybe their their journey doesn't include a, a death of a loved one, but it includes uh, other types of losses, whether it's a, a, a divorce or a job loss. Maybe they they lost their their career or they were on this career trajectory and, and just the, the industry tanked and now they're rediscovering who they are and just feel like they're at rock bottom, right? Right. Exactly. We all have this story. So what would you say to the person who, whether they have a similar story or another story that's just difficult to the important, what would you say about the importance of sharing that story or at least allowing that story versus avoiding it to go back into that story and to see how you can use that to, to benefit yourself and to benefit others around you as a professional? Yeah. I mean, I think that there can be a really, um, you know, the, holding your story separate from yourself, trying to keep it at arm's length, it is never going to have the positive outcomes, right? Like, you know, bad, like as a society, us trying to keep the, the bad things and ignore them and not, you know, not deal with them has never really worked. That's never been helpful. And I think that as hard as it can be to sit with it and to sit in it and to go through that pain and that process, it's critical. And I think that, you know, one of the beautiful things that I've gotten from my time at the Dougie Center, both as a as a participant, as a volunteer, as a staff person, is that, you know, there when you kind of sit in that story and and experience it and talk about it, that, you know, the the something happens where a little light gets let in and it gets a little lighter to, you know, you're to carry that story. And I think that over time it, it becomes this kind of part of you and who you are, and it can be a powerful part of you and your story. And I think as a leader, you know, really doing the work to get to that place is, is important. And then also, you know, recognizing when, when you can share that story, when you can share of yourself and when, 
it isn't the right time. You know, um, I think that there's parts of my story that I've shared differently over time or have held back certain aspects of things and then talked about them when I was ready. Um, you know, certainly we're human and, and things happen over time. And it, you know, you don't have to completely give everything away in sharing your story to be a strong leader and to, um, a, you know, to have that kind of empathy and compassion and show that you have depth and um, you've been there, you know, I think for me having gone through um, what I've gone through and then as you mentioned, kind of working through a lot of different roles at the Dougie Center, I think that that has really helped me to understand as much as I can what people are going through in their roles. And of course they bring their own unique stories to each of those roles. So, you know, I can't know exactly, but I certainly can have more understanding. And I think that that's a big thing for leaders is to really understand those that they're um, serving, you know, because it, that's what I'm doing is serving the staff of the Dougie Center, the volunteers of the Dougie Center, the families of the Dougie Center. And then you take that out to, you know, a more national perspective right now. I'm serving on the board of the National Alliance for Grieving Children. And, you know, it's just, it's, it is a part of, um, I think a part of my story has become that, that piece of things. Yeah. And I think, you know, so many, not even just in the business world, but I think I've heard from people in the nonprofit world that, you know, there's this, there's, I don't know the exact word I'm looking for, but you know, you, you keep your work life, your work life and your personal life, your personal life. But you and I know in the in the industry of, of grief uh, support, but in lots of other fields, you you don't do that because no matter what we try to do separate, you're the same person at home and at work. You can't create. I mean, you can choose not to share certain things, but our home life affects who we are as people. And so, the more we own it, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I just if anything, what what I hope has come from this global pandemic of you know, at this point, over 500,000 people in the U.S. dying and, you know, the, the global impact of this is that I think that, you know, that there are leaders hopefully out there that that the majority of leaders have recognized that, that you can't always separate work from everything else that's happening. And, you know, my hope is that as we come out of this, that there's a, a realization that, you know, people bring their whole selves to work and, uh and that's okay. And, you know, there needs to be, and of course, you know, of course, as a leader, you have to, you know, have accountability and, you know, there has to be <laughs> work being done, of course. Um, and I think you can absolutely allow for people to bring their whole selves to work, um, whether you're in the field of childhood bereavement or not. Um, and I hope that that's something that we will have learned more as we're coming out of this pandemic. I didn't mean to interrupt you. What else? No, that's okay. It's I mean that's exactly what I was going to say of just how how we start to evolve and change where, you know, this the the situation that we've been through in 2020 and going to 2021 has changed the way we can look at it. We can choose to adapt or not. And I think the leaders who allow their personal experiences to shape themselves it creates a compassion and empathy that our team members need to see from us because they go through stuff too. And if we if we treat them as um, you know numbers on a on a org chart or or um, even on a smaller team, you know someone who can help you accomplish your purpose and your task, 
they see right through that. And I think people, especially millennials and younger people, they they want to know that you care about them as a person. They want to know that you care about not just their job performance, but you see their value. And I think when when you lead authentically as who you are, it doesn't mean that you overshare, that you don't have boundaries and limits, but it means that you connect with them on a level on a humanity, you know, and, and, you know, we joked before we started recording, I mean, right now my son is taking a nap in the other room because he's sick and I couldn't take him to daycare. And so there's just a realness. And I've listened to lots of podcasts recently where you hear the kids running and playing in the background because they're at home and that's just how life is. And for us to not acknowledge that or to pretend like it doesn't exist, I think doesn't just do us a disservice, but it does a disservice to those that we lead as well. And I think it also can create challenges with our clients or our our uh, customers or our stakeholders or whatever industry that the leaders are serving in. And so I'm really glad that you spoke to that as well. I, I want to change gears for a second because one of the things that I was really inspired to, to learn from you and um, is just what it would be like to, to succeed a executive director who's had a tremendous amount of success and who's served for, I think you said, 25 years on the national level and really built this organization, not as the founder, but as really the, the primary face of it for such a long time, to, to then be the person who takes over it in their shoes, right? I mean, there's all kinds of challenges that that would come with, and you know, we, whether it's insecurities or concerns or just even a lack of experience, right? So I would love to hear maybe just your journey of like, one, were you like super eager to apply for the job or were you hesitant? Um, and two, kind of just talk to, to people about that process of uh, applying for the position, getting chosen for the position, and, and, and then stepping into those shoes after uh, the, the transition takes place. Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, one thing that came to mind for me when you were just talking was um, about prior to your recent question is really, you know, coming together over our shared humanity is a huge, um, I think is is a huge thing for to encourage in leadership, you know, uh, anyway. Okay, so I digress there, but I, I'll get back to your question. It's so, okay. So yeah, so Donna Sherman was the executive director for 25 years. She had been on the board of the Dougie Center for the five years previous to um, becoming the executive director. And so this month, she's celebrating her 30th anniversary as a staff person, which is just wow. amazing. So she's been involved in the organization for 35 years. And I worked for Donna for, you know, 11 years. Uh, Donna was my boss. And um you know, what, what kind of the, the trajectory of all of it was slightly unique because of, you know, me having worked at the Dougie Center for 11 years prior to becoming the executive director. But what I will say is that, you know, she tried to get out of the administrative portion of executive directorship uh, for quite some time because she, you know, is traveling and teaching and writing and training and advocating and, you know, doing all of these important things that the world needs her to be doing. So at any given point prior to the pandemic, she was traveling, you know, 65, 75% of her time for the Ducky Center. And, and to do that on top of an executive director role was just, it's impossible for anyone. And so, you know, she, she had tried many times to kind of do things differently and it never really stuck. And so she finally decided and, you know, working with the board and the executive committee that she really needed to step down from the role and, and that what came after that, she was very unsure of. She essentially gave her notice and said, you know, I need, I'm giving my notice for this position. I need to not be in this position. We need to find somebody else. And then 
we can determine if I still am going to work at the Dougie Center or not, um, depending on what happens. And so, you know, when, when obviously I knew that all of that was coming and of, and of course she had encouraged me to apply for the position and she and I had, you know, have such an amazing uh, relationship and rapport you know, she had encouraged me at one point to apply for another executive director position in a different organization because she thought I was ready for that role. And that's that's the kind of boss you want to work for, right? Is someone who who believes in you enough to say, I'm willing to lose you because you're ready for the next role and or the next step, um, which is amazing. And so, you know, that that wasn't, I didn't apply for that position because it wasn't the right position for me, but it really made me realize that, you know, I, I wanted that, that I was ready to do that. And so when this all happened, I, I did apply for the position. We did a full national search um, and, you know, there was a hiring committee and we had I, something like 65 qualified applicants for the role. And the hiring committee was high um, level volunteers. So a couple of volunteers who'd been volunteer facilitators for many, many, many years, like decades. And then a handful of folks from the board and Donna and I believe one other staff person. And, um, and so, you know, it was a full, very long, very robust hiring process. I had to do a full interview with the entire staff and with the board and um, as did others. And ultimately I was offered the position and what I will say is, you know, in the five years, and, and at that point, what Donna said is, well, I'm going to work for Brennan. And the board said, you're going to report to Brennan. How's that going to work? And she said, it's going to work fine. And so, you know, I reported to her for 11 years. She's reported to me for five years. And both, all of our time together has been, you know, wonderful and collaborative. And, you know, there's been times where we've disagreed on things and, you know, we have hashed it out and, you know, either one of us has said, okay, well, I don't necessarily agree, but we can do it that way or vice versa. And it's always, excuse me, it's always just worked really well. And I think a lot of that is stems from, you know, mutual, deep mutual respect and understanding of one another. So she stayed on, I convinced her to stay on at the Dougie Center in a role. Um, she's our senior director of advocacy and training. And, you know, there hasn't been any time where we haven't just it hasn't worked really really well now what i will say is that you know to answer your question about following in someone's footsteps when the, you know those are big shoes to fill i think one of the reasons it works so well for us is that our our strengths are very different and you know i am not a um i'm not a clinician i i don't have a programmatic background other than my participation in the program you know, I, my undergraduate degree is in psychology, but I'm not, um, I, I don't want to be a program person. I, I want to be an administrator, a fundraiser, a connector, an advocate, and, you know, outreach. That's, that's my strong suit. And so I do think that one of the beautiful things is that through this transition, Donna really gets to focus on what is best for her, what is her strong suit, and I get to focus on what is my strong suit. And, um, and so that is really, really helpful. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm very focused on our board and strategic planning and fundraising. And of course, you know, I have a deep um, understanding of our program. And so I can be a really, really mission focused leader 
without being a, a program coming up through the program, if that makes sense. I really came up through through fundraising. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I was listening to what you're sharing and, and a couple of words kind of popped out to me to to make something like that work and to really have your own success. I mean, you shared that it takes respect, um, mutual respect, but really, I mean, especially coming from your your point of view, it could be easy to to disregard that because you want to make you know your your you know footprint or you want to put your impact on things and so it takes um, respecting them in doing that it also requires humility uh, to ask for help I mean to to have them still stay on board especially as they were you know as she was the face of the the organization for so long by having her on still it, it takes it takes a certain level of humility on her part and your part for her to kind of submit to your leadership but also for you to submit in the sense of like. I might have this title now, but you have this vast amount of experience and a different skill set that I need to be successful. And would you stay on board? That's that's huge. And then the other thing I, I share, I wrote down because you you, you talk about a knowledge of your strengths. I mean, self awareness, right? So if there would be a temptation, I can imagine for a leader to try to be like the prior leader, and and I've seen that before, and and it usually means they fall on their face maybe not instantly but because they're tr- they don't know who they are or they're not comfortable in their own skin and i've often said that insecurity compounds inexperience right so if someone is insecure about who they are and and they are inexperienced it just multiplies that but i think you can overcome a lack of experience um or even a lack of education in a certain field if you have the the humility and the self awareness of your strengths and of your limitations and you're willing to build a strong team around you and so it sounds like there's several things that really were were vital as a leader in doing that i mean was there ever a time and you don't have to share specifics or anything but there's ever a time where you either doubted yourself in the process of interviewing or your first major decision or second major decision come you're like, oh my gosh, what 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 have I done? Am I even equipped for this? Would you mind sharing this or speaking to that a bit? Mind at all. I mean, I think um so yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, you can't be a leader and not ever have self-doubt. I think that that, you know, I I, I can't imagine that. Um, and all the leaders that I know and talk to, I think would agree with me that. Um, you know, you you all always are going to have self doubt, especially because the pressure can be so great, and you feel that pressure. And when you feel the weight of grieving kids everywhere on your shoulders, right? You you're gonna question yourself. So, for me, um, I think one of the scariest parts of applying for the job and getting the job was I've wanted this job since I was 14 years old. What if I hate it, and what if I can't do it? <laughs> you know, what if I'm not good at it? Yeah. Um, so when I got the job, um, you know, I, I had been close enough to the role to really know what I was getting myself into. Of course, you never know until you know, but, you know, I, I definitely had, I had been through so much with Donna and the Dougie Center. You know, we had had an arson fire in 2009 and watching her navigate that as executive director, that pressure was, was huge. So, you know, I felt like I had a real deep understanding of the role but again, you know, what if what if I can't do it? And I've wanted this job since I was 14. Um, and I think that, you know, really developing your own style and and figuring out what is, um, you know, what is your role and how are you going to do this job is is huge. And I I feel like I did that pretty early on, which is great. I will say that, you know, there were a couple things that I felt like I needed to do right away because there was, in particular, one. Um, 
kind of organizational decision that I understood why it had been made prior to me becoming ED. You know, I definitely understood why the board and and Donna had had gone in that direction. And um, and I the transition happened before that decision was implemented. And I and and Donna knew all along that I hadn't agreed with the decision. I didn't think it was the right thing for the organization. And so, um, you know, that was kind of one of my first things that I wanted to do was to reverse that decision. And, you know, and it was one of the moments that I knew that that Donna was going to be a supportive, incredible predecessor in this role um, was because I went to her and I said, you know, here's here's my thinking and here's why. And and she completely backed me. You know, she said I you know, I she she wasn't going to make that decision because she had made kind of the opposite decision. But but I was executive director now and and she was going to, um, you know, she was going to back me. And so, um, yeah, so, the, you know, those are those are tough moments. There's definitely been a fair share of tough moments. And especially with, you know, a global pandemic and all that's happened recently. And and what I think I go back to is that if every decision I make is centering the kids and families at the Dougie Center and grieving children and families, if every decision I make is trying to center the most vulnerable populations that we serve, um, you know, and if, if, if those are, if that's the guide star of my decisions, then you know, even if I make the wrong decision, it's going to be for the right reasons and we can figure out what to do next. Um, because you're not always going to get it 100% right. Uh, it's just not yeah. possible. You know, I think, and that's, I love that you shared that just now because one of the things that listeners need to hear, especially if they don't come from the nonprofit world, is the importance of a mission, right? When, when you know not just your organization's mission, but your personal mission it grounds you and it anchors you and it allows you to to focus on what matters most. And the, the challenge sometimes as leaders is we get so caught up in the data and the financials and the numbers that it can be easy for a leader to lose sight of why they are, they took the role in the first place, but why they uh, why they need to fight for the, the, the people that they serve um, and, and why the organization exists. Because, you know, the organizations, especially in the nonprofit sector, are, are a tool to, to execute the mission. And when we lose sight of that, whether we're in the nonprofit world or, or even in the, in the business world, it can create challenges. We, we, we shortcut, we take short-term gains and, and deal with the long-term consequences later. But you see these major corporations struggling with their own identity because they start to mission drift. And and I've worked with other nonprofits and I've done some seminars and talking about how how important it is to know who you are and to know who you aren't. Not and, and you mentioned this as a leader, but I think even, you know, looking at organizational uh identity, which is kind of your, your culture, um and, and and you know, knowing who you are and who you aren't as a leader, I mean the I think one of the greatest pitfalls or challenges that a leader goes through is the identity crisis and 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 trying to to maintain that that knowledge of who you are and who you are and not needing an accomplishment or a title to define you. And I, I know that was big for me when I decided to resign as executive director, the big wrestling match was who am I apart from what I do there? And, and I'm such a passionate person. I needed to, to do that in the right way. I needed to still figure out what my mission was. And so it was really helpful when we adopted our son, I, I felt like I needed to fight for him as, as my son, as our adopted child, who was, born he'd only been born for three days when we met him and he was born two and a half months early and it, that's when it clicked it was like this is my new mission and it made it 
it was still incredibly challenging to walk away, but I had a new purpose and a new mission to fight for and, and, and to know that the team was in good hands and that, that there was pieces in place that were going to allow them to continue to succeed and thrive is, is huge. Um, so I, mission focused is critical. And then I also think that, you know, one of the things that has really helped me in my leadership is really knowing what my values are and, um, and of course, making sure that my values align with the organizational values. And that would be true wherever I worked, right? I would want, I would want alignment there and, and really leaning on those values in tough times, you know, my two core values. And some of this is, uh, is definitely from Brene Brown's work on courageous leadership. Um, and, you know, my two core values are optimism and perseverance, right? So kind of hope, optimism, and perseverance, resiliency as flip sides of the same coin. So, you know, if I, if I continue to ground, you know, my decisions and my leadership style in my values of optimism and perseverance, like that's, that's who I am as a person. And that's kind of my um, way of being. And so that also really helps me, especially during the hard times is to really lean on that and remind myself that those are my core values. And, um, and I can lean into those during the tough times. And, you know, your core values can be, you know, obviously they're varied and very different for different people. But I do think that that can be really helpful as a leader. That's huge. I'm glad that you you shared that. I mean, you mentioned the hard times. I mean, people who are listening to this, people across the, you know, 2020 and everything in 2021, even now, so many struggles and so many challenges that people are going through. But one of the, the unique challenges that, that I imagine you have is you're not just leading a center in, in, in Portland, um, but you're, you're leading uh, an organization that has national and some international reach, multi-site. Um, and even, you know, with, with the resources I've benefited uh, as a leader and benefited as a grief support specialist from the resources that your team creates. Um, in fact, I used them uh, last week with a, a little boy who um, just lost his, uh, his grandfather and just needing some resources and helping them engage conversation, right? So there's this pressure of, you know, we all have, whether it's a nonprofit world, business world, uh, entrepreneurship, this pressure of how do you manage things locally or with your own, within your own walls. But I mean, there's some uniqueness to the pressure of like, you're, you're in the, the um, responsibility of carrying a lot of other leaders responsibilities too, even if it's just indirectly, but speak to even how you may have experienced that if that was something that was kind of aware uh, as you're going through all this stuff and and maybe some of the things that helped you navigate uh, that pressure or that responsibility through the pandemic and through the, the things that have stemmed from that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely feel that pressure. Um, and that can be both positive and negative, right? It can be um, it can be motivating and then it can also be difficult. Uh, I think that I try to really focus on the motivating aspect of it. You know, I try to really focus on, um, on, you know, stepping into that and really, um, fully embodying that (laughs) piece of my role in my work, uh, and certainly trying to help the organization continue to, really uh, embody, you know, our commitments to the national and international field. I think that, um, 
you know, one of the things that I'm really aware of, and 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 certainly I think uh, I've been aware of, and we've been working on organizationally for the last five years, uh, but is certainly at the forefront of the national dialogue right now is really around equity and inclusion and, um, you know, really making sure that the Dougie Center provides meaningful and relevant services to folks who are the most vulnerable in our society. And, um, and that's very important to me. And, and I think that there's lately, there has definitely felt, I've definitely felt like some of the field is looking to the Dougie Center because we have done this work and, and one for the last five years, but we aren't even close to being quote unquote there yet, right? And I know it's always evolving and it's always going to be something we need to pay close attention to. Uh, but we have so much work to do in this realm. And so, you know, I was talking with one of our um, consultants around equity and inclusion, and she basically said, you know, you need to remember as a leader to not succumb to the white supremacist value of urgency, <laughs> you know, that, 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 that it has to be done this second. And I think that was so helpful to me to remember, like, this is a journey, this is a process, and we're committed to that journey, and therefore it can't happen immediately because we're truly committed. There's so much work to be done versus something that's more surface or, you know, just putting out a statement and that's it. Um, you know, we're really committed to the to the work and that means that this is going to take some time. And I that translates for me to other aspects of things as well. You know, I think in a in a rush to respond to things, there's oftentimes, you know, uh, and, and certainly we as an organization have done this and I've done it where there's this immediate like we need to respond to this, we need to do something um, and maybe not always miss the mark or maybe not always hit the mark, right? Sometimes miss the mark. And so, you know, how do we as an organization really say there is, there are people watching. And I think this is true for every organization. We just happen to have, I think, a, a wider network of folks watching us, but every network has people watching them, your stakeholders, your, your, um, you know, your donors or your, your customers, depending on what, you know, sector you're in. And, People are watching, and so being measured, being thoughtful, and you know, taking a, a an approach that does focus on these things, you know, whatever the whatever the thing of the moment is for your organization, focusing on that, but also recognizing that you know, just like in grief, this is a marathon and not a sprint, and we want to be here for the long haul, and we want to continually keep showing up and showing. The way and being leaders and um yeah i mean i you know i think that there's there is some pressure when you are a leader in the field to stay in that space and i've had to kind of let go of that sometimes for myself i've had to kind of say okay i'm i'm not gonna succumb to that pressure what i'm gonna do is do everything I know how to do to run this organization to the best of my ability and to make it an organization that is worthy of that reputation and worthy of uh, folks looking up to us. When I speak, I think it speaks to what you shared earlier. 
um, the, the pressure to appear a certain way can be daunting, right? And and, it, and we can fall into that temptation. But one of the things that you shared that, that kind of can ground you is your mission and your values. And when you know what those are and they're so crystal clear, it allows you to, to prioritize that over what people think about you or what people want to say about you. And, and, you know, that can be a real temptation because I mean, there's real stakeholders that are out there. And, and yet when you ground your decision-making and your mission and you stay true to your values, it can be a really powerful way that ultimately um, like, like you shared, even in the decisions that you had to make with, uh, you know, reversing decisions, someone may not agree with your decision, but they respect the way you're approaching that decision because it's grounded in a mission and a value. And so I appreciate that you shared that. And I think that's a great way to kind of wrap up our, our, our time here. Um, I, I did, I did want to add one more thing. Cause I think one of the things that, um, whether it was probably already planned because I know it takes a long time, but one of the things that's kind of birthed out of this COVID situation, everything being extra, uh, focused on virtual and digital is you, you just launched an amazing website for the Dougie Center. I was scrolling through the other day looking for resources and just the resources are top notch. The layout's great. I mean, um, talk about, uh, just, you know, some of the things that you have on that, on that website and, and especially as a, a leader of leaders, how maybe other people, whether they work in the bereavement field or may have people who are affected by loss can benefit from the website that you just launched. Yes. Thank you. We have been actively working on that website for a year and a half. So it's been a long time coming. And of course, the global pandemic did not help the timeline by any stretch, but uh, we're so proud of it. And, you know, I would really encourage people to check out our toolkits. We have toolkits for all sorts of um, folks who are grieving and then also supporters of grievers. So toolkits for kids with activities and resources for kids, for teens, for young adults, for parents or caregivers, for, um, you know, then kind of that next circle out of family and friends, as well as professionals in uh, school community settings and other settings, as well as, um, you know, toolkits specific for after a suicide death or after a murder or violent death. So there's just a, hundreds, literally hundreds of resources on the website to check out. And then for professionals, there's a lot of information as well about, um, you know, our trainings and our work. And we are really excited that in June, we'll be publishing a book on the Dougie Center model. And then shortly thereafter, we'll also be having an online training option for folks. So it won't fully replace our in-person trainings uh, because, you know, you can't fully replace in-person work. Um, but it will be an online opportunity for folks to really learn about um, kids and grief. And, um, and you know, it'll be for people who are um, in the field as well as people who might not be in the field but want some information, like school counselors who obviously, you know, see a lot of kids who are grieving since one in 14 kids in the United States will have a parent or a sibling die before they turn 18, as we know from the research done at Judy's house and the JAG Institute. Um, so there's a, there's a lot there on the website and there's a lot more to come as well. Well, you, you do a great job. Um, really proud of the work that you've done just to stay in, in, in you know, uh, providing resources, not just for your team locally, but to, that people across the country can use, including myself. And, you know, I think one of the things I learned in my time leading grief support is the similarities between the grief journey and the leadership journey. And I think your story is proof that, you know, as leaders, we are uh, always being shaped and, 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 you know, evolving based on what we've experienced. But the greatest forms of leadership, I think, birth out of that, that 
journey of experience that we've gone through that we get to then invest in the lives of others, no matter what field that we're in. And so really appreciate you taking the time to to, to join us today. And um, where can people connect with you uh, if they want to, to learn more about the work that you're doing at Dougie Center, Dougie Center or even just connecting with you uh, to, to, uh, to learn more about what you're working on? Yeah, well, the website's a great place to start and it's www.dougie.org. And you can contact me through our website as well. And, um, you know, I'm always interested in in learning from folks and talking with folks about um, how Dougie Center can can support our community and our world, as well as just connecting over leadership. And, and again, what we talked about earlier, connecting over shared humanity, right? Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time here and really appreciate uh, all your insights and, and knowledge and, uh, and your personal journey of experience. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brennan Wood as much as I did. Learned a lot from our conversation and and I hope you did too. Well, that's going to wrap up our episode today. Thank you again for joining us and uh, really would appreciate if you could share this podcast with others and subscribe to it on the various platforms. You can follow me on social media at Rick Gutterson on the various different social media platforms. And that'll wrap up today's episode. Thanks again so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. 